All right. I get to fill in tonight while, while Jim and Ryan and a whole lot of other staff members are at a conference in Dallas. Right now, conference. Uh, uh, really, actually, we, we just started going this last year for the first time, and, and one that has been really cool, one I'd encourage you to, to think about next year when, when this time rolls around. Um, talking to Paul about going to that. It's a cheap, fast one in Dallas and a lot of fun. And so one, one that's worth looking into. We're going to be jumping into 1 Timothy 5, um, finishing out 5 and even going a little bit into chapter 6 tonight. I'm sorry that I don't have the, uh, the really cool black and neon sheets that you get from Jim. I, uh, I don't know how that program works. And Ryan Vincent left before I could figure out how that program worked. So he offered to leave his iPad behind to let me mess with it, but I figured that, that <coughs> excuse me, be disastrous. So we're going with the, with the boring white um, tonight. But let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in the text here. Dear God, thank you for your people, your church, your body, and, and thank you for your word and the chance to study it um, as a part of your body. Lord, I pray that as we open your scriptures up tonight, um, that your spirit who inspired these words would be the one who speaks to us, and that he would not just fill our minds with more knowledge, but um, give us a desire to change and obey you um, through your word, Um, the ability to do that as well. Um, Speak through me tonight. I ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, 1 Timothy 5. You guys did the first half of it last week uh, with Jim here. And the major emphasis in in that text that you were looking at is widows and the church's treatment of widows who at that time, in, in a day Jim talked about, in a day where there aren't government programs to take care of those Um, in need. Um, The church became a really critical um, piece and a really critical component um, to those widows in their lives. But as we saw, Paul has some pretty strong um, directions and rules and and principles when it comes to taking care of those in need in the church (coughs) and the lifestyle that they have lived so, so we taught the, the kind of the first word in that, in that section starting in verse 3 was that we honor the widows there. And we want to make sure we're rightly honoring the widows in this church. But honor these widows comes also in the context of recognizing that there are some widows who do not fit in the category of godly and, and God-fearing and church and family-oriented. And, and so we need to recognize that. Well, this text, as we move into, we'll, we'll use if there's any kind of connection, it's this word honor that's going to pop up at the, the beginning of both of our little sections. The main section, which is going to deal with elders, and then this little miniature section at the end that's going to deal with slaves and masters. Um, but it's kind of the same idea. Just as there are widows who need to be honored and likewise some that need to be rebuked or, or some that need to be, you need discernment to see what is real in their lives, what is true in their lives, and what is not. Um, same with elders. Paul's going to talk about rightly honoring elders, and yet he's also going to recognize that not all of them are to be honored. Some are to be rebuked. And, and that's what brings us into our text here um, today. Uh, by the way, I should say this, Paul's discussion of false teachers that comes up in this text over and over again, I'm sure Jim 
maybe Jim has mentioned it. I don't know. I've, uh, I, I work with the kindergarten boys on Wednesday nights now this year, so I don't get to be in here. Um, a much more livelier crowd. You guys are great and all, um, but you're not running circles around the room right now, and so I, I got to kind of adjust to everyone sitting in the same spot for a solid hour. That's going to be a little different. So anyway, so I haven't heard all that he's touched on. I kind of listened to last week's um, session to get into it, but one of the things that you see pop up in this in this epistle to Timothy is dealing with false teachers, teachers who, who claim to know a lot, but they're really just kind of puffed up with their own sense of knowledge, and they are leading many people astray with false doctrine. We also see, obviously, this emphasis on elders and, and deacons, leadership in the church, which, which really does kind of lead us to believe in a lot of ways that, the, that those two things are overlapping, that the problem was that there were um, elders who were walking away from, from the truth and leading people with them who are teaching false doctrine. That's what seems to be the case. We know from Paul's um, final uh, kind of speech that he gave to the elders in, in Ephesus, which is in Acts 20, he says that there's going to be people who will come into the church and they're going to lead others astray like wolves. They're going to try to savage the flock. And he even says, and, and sadly says, I know that even some from among your own number you elders are going to rise up and do the same thing. And it appears that that has been true in this case. And so, so now we get into kind of how we deal with elders in that spot. Verse 17 says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Um, one of the things that is really, and I'll say this real quick, says let the elders who rule well, that word rule well is, is kind of an interesting one to try to translate. Some translations say who direct the affairs of the church. Some say manage. Well, it's actually, it's the exact same word that is used in 1 Timothy 3, um, verse 4, when it talks about that if, if someone's going to be an elder, they need to manage or direct their own family well before they can be an elder. And if someone is going to, in verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12, if someone is going to be a deacon, same thing, that they ought to be able to manage their own family too. Here's, here might be the best word that, that kind of sums up this stuff, lead. They ought to be able to lead their family well. And I know Jim has talked about, you see in this epistle, Paul doing kind of a pushing together of family and church, that these things look a whole lot alike and are a whole lot alike and really are family and church, kind of the church is family. And so it would make sense that Paul would use the same word, you need to be able to do this, care for, lead, direct your family well, because that's how we want you to act as an elder in the church, that you are caring for and directing and leading these people as your family. So it says, those who rule well will be considered worthy of double honor. We'll get into what all that might mean in just a moment. Um, but there is, uh, there is actually, so there are four different ways to, to interpret that idea. What does he mean by double honor? Um, so, so here are kind of four different methods. One is that that honor he's talking about is in comparison to the widows from the previous section. So what he's saying is, widows, you should make sure you honor them. Elders, especially those who are doing preaching and teaching and doing well, give them like double the honor of that, twice the honor of even what you would give to the widows. Um, a second option is that he's comparing these elders to other elders. So yes, honor the elders, but those who are doing preaching, teaching, and doing well on it, give them double the honor, twice the honor. 
Um, a third option is that he's talking about honoring them with respect and also honoring them financially, like supporting their ministry with, with um, either that money or food or clothing or whatever it is, but by honoring them through that. And the fourth is that he's talking about paying all the elders, but the ones who are preaching, teaching, and doing a good job, they get paid twice as much. Um, so which of the four is it? I, it does seem, actually, in light of the very next verse that we're about to jump into, it seems like he, he's talking about finances here. He's going to give some explanations that, that really do tie to support in some form or another, material support. Um, and so for that reason, three really does seem to make sense. Four seems, it seems out of place, this idea of some making twice as much because they preach and teach just doesn't sound like, like the way Paul would run church or those kinds of things. But three really does seem to make sense um, in light of this context. And this is what he says after that. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For, this is the reason why you give them double honor. Because the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. For the scripture, so the reason that you give elders double honors, because the scripture says to do this, it says you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. That's a direct quote from Deuteronomy 24, 5. Um, and the idea is simply, if you have an animal that is working in a field, it makes sense. It's only logical that that animal has the right to eat of the very work that it's doing right there to eat and, and to be provided for by the very field that it's working in. And, and Paul will use that exact verse, he'll quote it in 1 Corinthians 9, to, to give him, to, to basically defend his right to receive payment and support for his work as an apostle, for his ministry. Actually, um, I, I have down there 1 Corinthians 9, 9, actually all of 9, 1 through 14 is kind of an extended explanation of Paul's right to marry like the other apostles if he wants to, um, to eat and drink certain foods if he wants to, and a lot of it is focused on the fact that he can, he can receive payment from them for being apostle. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he's actually doing all this, and then he, he, he sets up this whole defense of the fact that he could get paid, and then he refuses it and says, but I don't want you to. I don't want you to, like you, you should, it makes sense, even, even the scriptures say don't muzzle the ox when it's, when it's plowing the field, that is, I'm working in this field and the field is you, it makes sense that I would, that I would get paid from that, that I would at least receive the money to eat and to, to have a place to live and to have clothes and those kinds of things. Paul in 1 first, in, in, yeah, in Corinthians says I don't want to do that. Um, in, in the Corinthian church, there was a lot of skepticism towards Paul and some thinking that he might be um, a con artist of some kind or, or maybe coming and speaking the truth but really only interested in his own status or money or power. And for all of those reasons, Paul says, like, I refuse to take any money from you. I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression about what I'm doing or, or why I'm doing it here. But he makes it clear that the worker should be able to receive that to some extent. And so he says that is the case here as well, um, that, that elders or ministers should um, elders who are working in this way, preaching and teaching, that is, devoting their time to it um, in such a way um, that they don't have time to do other things. He says, those who labor in preaching and teaching, the NASB says, work hard, and that might be the best word for it. Those who work hard, Paul uses the same word in 1 Timothy 4 and 10 in where he says, I 
toil and I strive. Um, one, one dictionary uses this word to say to work to the point of exhaustion. Um, that a person, and, and it's Paul's favorite word, one of Paul's favorite words to describe his own ministry is, is like um, working my tail off is the way Paul describes his ministry, is I just work, I I toil and I strive with all my might, and he'll use this word in Colossians to say, not just mine, I work with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me to do these things. Um, But he says, so the person who is working to that degree, when when they are working in this way, it makes sense for the church to pay an elder like Jim Johnson so that Jim can can focus on the, the issues of preaching and teaching, can focus on the issues of pastoral ministry and not have to balance that with a 40 or 50 hour a week job. And the idea isn't obviously not paying anyone to extravagance, but supplying the needs of this person in order for them to focus more fully on the work of ministry. Um, and he goes on and says, the scripture says, and this gets a little interesting, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Um, that phrase, the laborer deserves his wages, comes right out of Luke ten seven. It is from Jesus. When I first re- read that, I got excited because sweet Paul is already talking about the gospel of Luke, quoting it as scripture. Uh, the problem with this, and this, this does seem to be, I mean, this is, this is how it's worded in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus says this. This, by the way, Luke 10, is when Jesus sends out his disciples into the surrounding region, and he tells them, hey, like, if a house takes you in, feel free to stay there and eat the food that they offer you and sleep in the bed that they offer you for the laborer, the worker, deserves his wages. It only makes sense that if you're working there, that they're, they're taking care of some of your needs. Um, and so it seems really cool that, that Paul is quoting the Gospel of Luke and calling it Scripture already at this point. The problem is Luke probably wasn't written at this time yet. Um, probably wasn't written down. Now, there are a couple different options there. We know that Paul... Uh, Paul was a traveling companion of Luke, that they were around each other a lot. And so as Luke is piecing together the stories and making it together, it could be very, tr- very real possibility that, that he gets this from Luke uh, that way. It could also be true that, that it was just kind of understood this was a common phrase that, that the church knew that Jesus used. We know that a lot of the teachings early on before it's written were passed down orally. And so there were statements and teachings of Jesus that the church just knew. Um, another honest possibility is simply that this was a somewhat common phrase. This is really kind of a somewhat almost generic maxim. It makes sense. Yes, the worker deserves his wages. And so it could have been that Jesus just used this common phrase and Paul happened to use it too. In that case, when he says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, he's done quoting scripture and then says, oh yeah, and also it makes sense that the worker deserves his wages. Um, so he says the, the worker deserves its wages, um, and then he goes on and says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Um, this sounds uh, at some level at first kind of almost like because they're an elder that there should be almost an extra level of um, accusation brought against them before you he- hear or entertain any of those accusations. But actually, in reality, this is the rule that is true of all people throughout Scripture. 
um, that this is the rule that was laid out by Moses in Deuteronomy 19, um, that you don't hear any charges against somebody unless there are two or three witnesses in it. Paul reiterates this rule in 2 Corinthians 13.1, and it's not just about elders there, it's about anybody. And math, and Jesus makes this rule in his own teaching on church discipline, which we studied just a few weeks back here on Sunday morning, Matthew 18, that there ought to be the witnesses of two or three so that you don't have he said, she said, going on in the church and people able to just kind of um, uh, lob accusations at particular people, but especially in a church um, like in Ephesus where it appears that there was a lot of chaos. Um, I say a lot of chaos, where it appears that there was definitely some degree of chaos amongst the eldership and the leadership. And there were probably a lot of accusations around this time that started getting kind of lobbied against different sides. Um, and, and Paul says, listen, we don't just entertain anybody who walks in and says an elder did something, not unless there are witnesses to look on these things and check through these things. Um, so you do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But, he says, as for those who persist in sin, and that word those is not just, uh, he's not talking about anybody. We're in the context of elders. So as for those elders who persist in sin, so if two or three people come forward and they, and they point out sin in an elder's life, and if that elder continues on in that sin and, and does not repent, then you rebuke them. But not just rebuke them, you rebuke them in the presence of all. Might be saying of all the elders, more than likely he's saying in front of the church. You bring that elder in front of the church. If they are living in sin, you bring them out in front of the church and you rebuke them in front of all, which is a scary sounding thing. And, and a lot like some of the stuff that Jim mentioned last week, hard to even imagine us asking questions of widows before we decide whether or not we're going to take care of them. And in some ways, it can be hard to imagine standing an elder up and rebuking them publicly in front of the church over sin. This is what Paul calls for. And, and I don't actually even know necessarily if it meant that the elder would be up in front. He may, if he's living in sin, may not even be there anyway. But publicly making the accusation that this is what's going to happen. But there's a reason why he says you bring them up in front of everybody. He says right after this, so that. That's, by the way, when I study the Bible, um, Purpose phrases or reason phrases are some of my favorite for being able to understand what's at the root of the teaching. Why does Paul want you to do this? Why does he want you to be able to do these things or, or to be able to understand this thing or act in this way? Because there's a lot of times there's a so that or a for this reason or an in order that, and Paul explains why it is we act in this way. Here's what he says here. So that the rest may stand in fear. Um, you, you bring an elder up and you publicly rebuke him for living in sin so that the rest will be a little bit freaked out about that. Um, so that they won't, so, so they'll have a, a right fear in it. The Bible, largely when it talks about our ethic and the motivation for our ethic and our morality, love is the primary motivator. Over and over again, our, our love for God and our love for people is why we want to do these things. However, um, the Bible does not apologize for using things like fear as a motivation as well. Fear of God, first and foremost, but even fear of kind of the shame of the brothers and sisters sometimes, or the, or the fear of, yeah, having to stand up and admit to something. The Bible doesn't, it doesn't feel bad for doing that. The writers of the Bible, Jesus doesn't mind saying things like, don't just fear the one who can destroy the body, but also him who can destroy body and soul. 
He doesn't mind talking a whole lot about judgment. And you probably better repent because I'm telling you, it's going to be easier for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it is for you. And, and, and the Bible has no problem with using fear or wrath or judgment as a motivation. I could say in my own life, I, I, I specifically remember a time when I was at Ozark and I want to say that it was shortly after, it was either shortly after Christmas break or shortly after summer break. And, and we had like a dorm meeting in Williamson Hall there in, in the main lobby. And I, I might be crazy. I know there were some professors there. I want to say there may have even been like the president of the school was there. It was, it was kind of this big deal. We all got there and, and one or two of the guys from our dorm had, had engaged in some activities that were against school policy. I honestly... I don't even know if I remember all what it was. It may have been drinking or partying or something like that. Um, but like had engaged in that and, and they did not and, and they did not stand them up there and publicly shame them. Um, they didn't humiliate them, but, but apparently these people felt convicted and came and talked um, to the school administration. And, and so the school administration brought them in and, and in a gracious and in a loving way talked publicly about the sin that this person had engaged in and allowed this person to be able to stand up and, and apologize to the rest of our dorm for that behavior or whatever. And, and it, again, it wasn't, it wasn't like a scary thing. It, wasn't, it, it, it did not have the, um, the feel of something um, awful or anything. It really actually kind of had the feel of something beautiful to it as, as they were able to repent publicly and, and we were all able to extend grace and kindness and, and forgiveness in that mode. But I also remember at times later on when, when I was actually tempted towards a few things that, that had to do with breaking school policy, I can tell you for sure that my mind went back to that night in the dorm when the president of our school was sitting in our lobby going, I'm not going there. Like, I don't, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to have to do that. And, and I think that there's something that is totally okay about that. I think that there's something that is, um, that is even good and right about saying, I don't want to publicly acknowledge that I let my brothers and sisters down. I don't want to publicly acknowledge that I chose sin over my Lord. I don't want to do those things. And, and, um, and, and so that there's a good kind of motivation to that a little bit. Um, Speaking of not, not being afraid of using judgment or fear, here's what Paul says to Timothy in verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice. Now, I'll step back there because I don't know if, if something hits you funny there, but, but you had this great opportunity for a sweet Trinitarian pattern there in the presence of the Father and the Son and of the elect angels. And, and it's just kind of a weird little, weird little phrase that sticks in there. We don't actually see that phrase, elect angels, anywhere else in the New Testament. And, and commentators are honestly, they're not sure exactly why Paul put it here. But we do know that in a couple different places in the Bible, the angels are present in times of judgment. That we see them when people are being judged that the angels are there. The, the angels are at multiple times in the scriptures seen to kind of watch over the affairs of man. Uh, and and if, to, to kind of see what's going on in the church. And so it, it could be kind of a reminder of, of judgment that Paul is throwing out there. And so he doesn't mind using to Timothy, hey, in the presence of God, he's watching you. 
and of Jesus, he's watching you, and of the angels, they're watching you, I charge you to keep these rules. That would be, we've seen three rules listed out so far for the elders. The first is in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Um, Number two, um, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, and that's 19. And then verse 20, that for those who do persist in sin, you rebuke them in the presence of all. And Paul says, I charge you to keep those rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality, um, that you, you stick to the truth in this, Timothy, and not simply, not simply relationship and no favoritism and none of those things. You try to be, um, speak to the truth and to justice and to righteousness in these things. And he'll add to this actually a fourth rule um, for how we work with elders. Um, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, or take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Um, and normally when, when people, a lot of times when they read that, that idea of laying on of hands, we think, first of all, maybe of prayer, but also of like healing in some form, laying on of hands for, for healing in some form. But uh, that's in the scriptures. We see that some, but Usually when this phrase laying on of hands is talked about in the context of the church, it's in the context of appointing someone to a position of ministry, appointment or a commissioning. So in Acts 6, when there are some of the widows in the church who are being overlooked in the distribution of food and they need to, the, the apostles decide, we, we can't take care of all of this. We need to appoint some men um, uh, of wisdom and good standing who will look over some of these affairs. And so they, they find these seven men, Stephen being one of them, and they lay hands on them and pray for them and commission them to this task. Um, in Antioch, when the church is praying and fasting, some of the elders and leaders are there, and, and the Holy Spirit comes and says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the task of bringing the gospel um, out to go on kind of their first missionary journey. And it says in Acts 13 that they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas and they commission them out. Um, in 1 Timothy uh, 4, just a little bit ago, Paul mentioned to Timothy that you should not neglect the gift that was given, of, uh, given to you through the laying on of hands as you were kind of commissioned out into ministry. All that to say, what he's talking about when he says the laying on of hands is not praying for someone specifically. It's not healing for someone. It is selecting someone for it to be an elder. Do not be hasty in appointing someone to the eldership, um, nor take part in the sins of others. Now, that could be a second commandment, or a second command. Don't be hasty in appointing elders, and don't take part in the sins of others. I think that's actually the same commandment repeated and explained. Don't be hasty in appointing elders, because by the way, if you choose wicked men to be elders, and you chose them, then you, then you bear some of the weight for that sin that you allowed into the leadership of the church. Um, so don't be quick to just put anybody in leadership. Don't be quick to jump and throw them into the things. Don't take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, if 22 went directly to verse 24, it would make a whole lot of sense. This, this makes complete sense if you skip 23, but 23 is in there. If you read 22 to 24, it is, um, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And as you can see, that, that flows nicely, but that's not actually what we get here. We get this little parenthetical statement, and that's how 
the ESV translated, they put parentheses around it where Paul says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Um, which is just the most random statement to put anywhere in Scripture, and especially right in here. Um, seemingly random. And, and I do think it's a little bit random, but I think there's actually something he said that has sprung this up in his mind. Um, that last statement, keep yourself pure. Well, if, if you remember back, we see that false teachers in the church, they actually had a number of ways that they determined that people should be pure and that they should live in a right way. Um, it says in 1 Timothy 4 that there are people who come and preach that people that, that they should. Let me see if I can find that real quick, make sure I get that right. 1 Timothy 4.3. Um, I'll, I'll just read it. Um, yeah, it talks about people, uh, false teaching that comes through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Um, and so it appears that actually there, there are teachers in the church right now who are, who are teaching that you should avoid certain foods. If you really want to be pure, if you really want to be holy, if you really want to be righteous, then avoid marriage, basically an ascetic lifestyle. Avoid marriage, kind of what uh, Scott talked about a couple Sundays ago from 1 Corinthians 7. There were some there saying, it is good, it is not good for a man to even touch a woman. That is, don't, don't even have sex with your wife. You shouldn't actually even be married. Um, and Paul fights against that, and here he does as well. And so it could be that Paul says, keep yourself pure. But by the way, I I'm not talking about what these dummies are talking about when they say you, shouldn't, you should avoid all these things. And Timothy, by the way, with your stomach stuff, you probably should be drinking a little bit of wine. Um, the words, it's, it's actually interesting. This phrase to do not drink water only. This is the only place in the Bible that it's ever in there. And every time we see this word in antiquity, it is not a phrase simply about drinking water. It is literally a phrase used to describe people who abstain from alcohol and drink water. It's kind of like their version of teetotaler. And so it's, Paul is actually, it seems like saying, don't be a teetotaler, Timothy. Um, not, not saying that is a command that every Christian needs to go drink, okay? This is to Timothy. Um, but saying like, but, but to those who come in and say this is a wicked thing and real, real godly people abstain from that stuff, Paul says that's silly. That's silly. And in fact, if you've got stomach problems and you're drinking, just constantly drinking water from some well in first century Ephesus, that probably explains your stomach problems, Timothy. Um, and so, and, and actually it was kind of believed back then for wine to have medicinal qualities, but maybe more than anything, just wine is going to probably be better for you as far as um, the amount of stuff that might be in the water back then. Might be better for your stomach. And so Paul says, don't, don't get caught up in all that silliness of what, what makes you really truly pure or not. Um, of course, Paul combats against, he, he says, elders should, should not be given to drunkenness. Deacons should not be addicted to much wine. So of course he's against drunkenness. Um, but the idea that um, teetotaling, that, that abstaining from it um, completely makes a person more holy, um, Paul speaks against that and encourages Timothy, go ahead and drink a little wine so you're, so you're not feeling sick all the time, Timothy. Um, verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. The NIV says, and I think this might be a better translation, trail behind them. 
It's kind of this picture of watching someone and trying to kind of make a judgment about them as they pass by and, and don't, Paul says, don't make a snap judgment because like their sin might not appear in your vision until later as they get a little further past you. There are some that it's obvious to me. There's some that you can look at them and, and by their lifestyle, it's easy to see and you'll know, avoid those people. But the reason I'm telling you don't be hasty in laying hands on people is because some people's sin isn't evident upon first looking at it. And you're going to have to wait, and you're going to have to do your work, and you're going to have to pray, and you're going to have to really examine these people before you just set them up in positions of leadership. Um, So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Um, This is an interesting, and and you guys have talked in 1 Timothy 3 about elders and eldership, but this is an interesting little section of Scripture and the way that it talks about elders, both on the the high end of how they ought to be treated and on the low end of how those in sin ought to be treated. But the Bible does lift up um, quite a bit the importance of those in um, spiritual authority. Um, Lifts up elders to to a great extent. 1 Corinthians 16.16 commands us to not just respect them, not just kind of follow them, but be subject to. Subject yourselves to them. The same phrase is used in 1 Peter 5.5, be subject to your elders, to those who have been placed over you. And Hebrews 13.17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Um, Subject yourself to them, submit yourself to them in a way um, that makes it a joy for them to oversee you. This is a huge task. They are watching over your souls as though who's, those who must give an account. Let that be a joy for them um, and not, not drudgery for them. Um, today, I, I think, I think the, the average person does not get this understanding of spiritual leadership and does not get this understanding of eldership. Um, in the average person in the church believes that elders are good. Um, in some churches, they don't have elders. They have boards or committees or whatever, and, and, and we, we could, whatever, discuss the, the, the uh, biblical nature of those and how biblical those are and how much we're just using semantics when we talk in these different terms. But the average person, when they think of uh, elder, I think they, they think that that is a good thing. We need to have somebody who's uh, a group who's helping us to oversee the finances um, and uh, someone who's maybe making decisions about the building and things that need to be happening with that and even programming and, of course, like hiring staff, those kinds of things. We need to have somebody kind of setting the tone. But I think the average person honestly believes, but if I disagree with the elder, I don't, I don't have to go along with that. Like if, if the elders come to some conclusion that I don't like, then I'm not like bound to that by any means. I've, I've got all kinds of options in front of me. I can fight it. Um, I can literally like gather up enough people that we can kind of be against that. I've seen that take place within a church. Um, we'll just gather up enough people and, and we'll just push back against. I mean, they, yeah, there's elders, but there's, I mean, how many of them are there? And we, it's almost like it's a fight or bar fight or something. I just get enough people on my team um, and we can, but this idea that I can, I can turn the church in my favor, I can fight, or of course I can always just leave. 
Um, but, I'm, but like, yes, elders are good to help guide us. But it, the, the second I disagree, then, then I, can, I can step away from that. The Bible does not have that perspective. The Bible doesn't have the perspective that, that um, everyone has equal say in the church. That all of us have an equal vote on the direction of our church, on the direction of our leadership and all those things. That's, that's not the understanding that the scriptures bring. And, and that's one of the reasons Jim talks about a lot. We don't vote here at Sunnybrook um, because the only votes we see in the Bible go poorly. Um, and so, so like, we don't, we don't do that. The Bible says, no, no, these people are, are appointed to look after you. And, of course, in, in their day, they, they didn't have in, in Ephesus, if you didn't like something that the leadership had decided, um, you could just leave, but there's nowhere else to go. You can't, you can't go to Second Baptist Church. Um, you can't go to whatever it is, to, to Second Sunnybrook Church. You can't, like, there's, there's, only, there's only one church, and so you, you, you don't have the option. You submit to the leadership, or you don't. And, and there are a lot of people that that idea is even a little bit scary. So, but but what, if, what if we get really sinful men in the eldership? What if, we, what if they're power hungry? What if they don't care for the needs of the flock? That's the importance of First and Second Timothy and of Titus. That's, that's why these books are so important to lay out. Listen, if, if we follow um, the example set in Scripture for what these men ought to be like, and if we work through areas of discipline like our chapter here talks about, then, then we it's not to say that, that we'll, we'll have no problems, that it won't be messy sometimes, but then you can trust the godly elders that God has appointed over us. We can know that they are men of high character who are above reproach, and we can know that when sin is, is, is there that it will be dealt with. Um, I love, Jim says it all the time, but if, if the elders ever decide to fire him, um, then agree with, like, everyone needs to line up with them. Don't, I, he says, I guarantee you, the, the 12, the 10, the 12 of them, I don't know how many we have, the, the 10 or 12 of them won't get it wrong altogether. I, as one person, might get it wrong, but you have, you have a dozen godly men in a room who are praying through and thinking through things. They're not going to get that wrong, so don't, none of this nonsense about following the minister across the street for him to start his own church. Um, that's, that, that's ridiculous. We submit to the leadership that God has placed over us gladly because um, they bear the responsibility of caring for our souls. Um, and, and again, that's, that's what makes this text, I think, so important in this book is when we follow these things, then we don't have to, we don't have to worry so much about um, power-hungry men if we're trying to follow the biblical example. Um, imagine uh, if all the churches followed these things, how, how much smoother things would go if, if churches weren't, and, and man, I'm, by the way, so grateful and, and consistently grateful for the, for the opportunity I have to be at Sunnybrook. Um, and, and every time I get to travel somewhere and, and talk to other people who are in ministry at other churches or sometimes just attending other churches, um, I am reminded again of how grateful I am to be at a place like Sunnybrook with godly leadership, um, men who love the Lord and love the church and are trying to direct us towards the good of the kingdom um, because it's not, sadly, the case in a lot of places. And, and there's a lot of havoc wreaked on the church um, when people have been hasty in the laying on of hands. Um, when people have not been quick to rebuke uh, public sin, 
um, that is uh, unrepentant sin in the life of the leadership. Um, when we are quick to, to bring someone onto the leadership simply because um, they're a good old boy, they've been here for a while, and, and pretty big tither, so, you know, makes sense. Um, and they, they obviously they know how to run a business, so they, they probably, that, that, that translates, right? They know how to run a church if they know how to run their business. And, and there are a number of places where that's the case, and it, it really does cause a lot of problems. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to be, to be at a place where that is, that is just not the case for us, and um, God is good to us here. Chapter 6 moves us into another little section. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters of, as worthy of all honor. There's our word again that kind of connects. Um, regard them of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Um, so now we get into this issue of bondservants or slaves as we've talked about it. And I got to talk about it some on Sunday. And I listened to Jim talk a little bit about it on, uh, on the tape from last week. But... Um, it, it always bears kind of repeating that we are talking about a different kind of slavery than uh, chattel slavery from the 1800s in the U.S. Um, again, which is a which is slavery based in in racism, a slavery based in um, the kidnapping of people from their home and brought to another place and sold into slavery. It's not that none of that went on in the Greco-Roman Empire. It's not that uh, a number of slaves in the, in the Roman Empire would have been probably the result of war. Probably at this time, not so much of war. A number of the slaves in the empire would have been just born into it. Um, at this point. Uh, a large portion of the empire's population um, was slaves. Um, but, it, but it was much more, Jim used this phrase, kind of indentured servitude. Um, what we kind of see of, um, what's, what's that British show, OETA, what's PBS? Uh, what's, you know, there it is, Downton Abbey. Indentured servitude, butlers and maids and stuff, Downton Abbey. That, a little bit more along that idea, as, as I kind of said on Sunday, slaves could own property. Slaves could own their own slaves. Slaves could actually reside in at least low-level um, administration jobs in the government. Like they were, they were slaves working in the government, not, not just like secretaries, but like, like kind of making some decisions. Um, and, and that stuff in, in local government stuff. And so, so it, it's, it's not what we have in mind um, when we talk about these things. And, and a slave could purchase their freedom or gain their freedom through working it off. Oftentimes they wouldn't because um, there is a, a certain amount of honor and respect that might come with a family name and privilege that might come with it. That is, that the slave may say, honestly, it is worth it to be a part of this household rather than to be a poor free man with no honor or money or name for myself. And so there are some who, who chose to, um, chose to remain in that spot. All that said, it doesn't mean that it was an ideal situation. It doesn't mean that it was something that, was, that, that slaves just really, really loved their position, at least not all of them. Um, and so this, this, this gospel message that would um, move throughout the empire of, of a Christ who sets us free and, and brings freedom into our lives in these things, it says when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, for the slave is free in Christ. 
Um, and of course, the free man is, the freedman is, is a slave to Christ. But that is a very attractive thing. And when Paul says in Galatians 3.28, again, I quoted this on Sunday, but the whole, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, no slave or free. This idea that all of us in Christ stand on equal footing. So I, I said before that we don't all get equal vote. We don't all get equal say because, because the Bible um, says yeah, there are different levels of maturity. There are different levels of spirituality. But as far as footing, as far as the, the amount of um, value each person holds, that is equal because all of our value comes from the same source, which is Christ. And this would have been an incredibly attractive message to the slaves. And, and it appears from the fact that Paul addresses this issue a number of times, it appears that there were uh, a, a fairly large amount of slaves in the early church, slaves who had been drawn to this new gospel. And, and some really beautiful things about this fact that you're no longer just a slave because of Christ, but there could be some misunderstanding um, that would lead some to believe, which means I don't have to do any of my obligations anymore, which means I don't owe anybody anything, which means I don't have to, I don't have to live out the situation that I'm in at this time. And Paul would step in and say, no, no, that, that's not necessarily true. Look at his reasoning. He says, the reason you honor and regard your masters as worthy of honor is, here's that, that phrase I like so much again, so that. This is why Paul is saying this. He has kingdom in mind, so that the name of God and the teaching, namely the gospel, may not be reviled. It does us no good if anytime somebody becomes a Christian, Paul says, they... Um, they just like let go of all their, all their responsibilities and duties and say, I don't have to do that anymore, free in Christ. And just walk away. That's, that's hurting our name when our people look lazy, when our people use Jesus as an excuse to not fulfill their responsibilities. Um, he says, so, so you, no, you honor them well, you work well f- for them so that the name of God and the teaching may not re- be reviled. Then he says those, and again, the those points to bond service to the slaves. Those slaves who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, but rather they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So he says, the flip is true. There are some who we get saved and their masters weren't Christians, and so they just thought, well, I can live however I want. I'm more connected to the church here anyway. This guy's not even a believer. And Paul says, no, 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 you give us a bad name when you do that. And then there's another side. There are those who were believers and their masters were believers and they believed what Paul said and that is that you guys are on equal footing before Jesus. There's equal value. There's no more slave or free. You guys are brothers. And, and they would take that to go, sweet, so that means I don't have to serve this guy anymore. And, and Paul says, not, that's not true either. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about inherent value and worth. I'm not talking about your role or your responsibility. Um, and, and so Paul says, if, you're, if your master's an unbeliever, you want to serve him for the sake of the gospel. Um, and if your master is a believer, you want to serve him because he's your brother and you want his life to go well. You, you love him because he's, he's your brother in Christ and so you want to care for him. And of course, we'll, we'll see other places in um, Ephesians and in Colossians where Paul will address the slaves, but then he'll also address the masters and say, hey, you remember that you have a master in heaven. 
you remember that these are your brothers. And so he, he of course, comes after the masses and tells them to treat these people well. Um, but the idea is that you work well for them. This is, um, obviously, we don't have this in, in, in America today, in our day and age, which is wonderful and good. We do still have um, positions of employer and employee. And, and texts like this remind me of this truth that um, Christians ought to be the best employees, ought to be the best workers wherever they are, because either those Christians are working for non-believers, in which case they have an incredible opportunity to show off the gospel through a, through a life that is lived out in love and in hard work and in caring for the people who are um, the colleagues or the clients or whoever comes in in integrity and honesty. They have an incredible ability to point to um, the name and the teaching, as Paul says here, or those Christians are working for Christian bosses, in which case they love that person as a brother or sister in Christ and ought to desire the good of them and their business, the good of them and their employer. And so for whatever reason, Christians, for either side that you fall on, Christians have greater motivation than anybody else to work well for our boss, um, Jesus and his family. And, and, and so we have that, we have that on us that, that no one else gets. And so he says, for that reason, you ought to honor your masters um, as, as worthy of honor so that the name of God and teaching may not be reviled and because they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, honor uh, widows, care for them in their needs, um, but be discerning about their character. Honor your leaders, honor the elders, and especially those who are spending and laboring and working hard for the kingdom and don't have time to give to other things. Um, care for their physical needs so that they can do those things. And honor those you work for. Um, these, are, these are kind of three categories of people that Paul lays out here. This is how the church ought to operate in our interactions with different people in and outside of the church. Um, that's what I got for tonight. I will ask if you've got kids back in um, in the small group stuff that you'll give them another five minutes before you walk back there so that they can make their way through the rest of their curriculum. Thanks, guys.